Hi there. My name is Mireya Perez, and I aspire to create a platform where language service providers can tell their stories and where listeners can find inspiration and creativity. This podcast is dedicated to you, the language professional that desires to listen to the journeys of others in order to create their own path and personal branding. Here, I'll feature an array of guests from all fields of interpretation, as well as translation, willing to share their stories with you. Join me as we embark on professional and personal development by telling our stories. This is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Hi there. Today's episode is dedicated to all the interpreters and translators in the area of education. I am a fellow interpreter in education and know firsthand all of the difficulties that come with the work we strive to provide and the unfortunate roadblocks along the way. Today, you'll hear yet another excellent conversation, and you'll know that this topic is dear to my heart because, one, this is one of the longest episodes I've had so far, and two, I can't seem to keep quiet in this episode. I hope this helps to inspire you to continue the work you're doing or encourage you to begin to do the work you've been thinking about doing. Kleber Palma is currently the director of the New York City Department of Education's Translation and Interpreting Unit, which he established in 2004. The unit provides translation and interpreting services and language access support to more than 1,700 schools throughout New York City. Prior to this, Kleber served as the director of the Los Angeles Unified School District's Translations Unit, the second largest school system in the country, a language specialist for the FBI, and a translation services manager for a private firm in California. He has extensive experience as a freelance Spanish translator and a language access consultant. He holds a BA in International Relations from the University of Southern California and an MBA from the California State University in Los Angeles. So, without further ado, here's Kleber's story. Kleber, thank you for taking the time to join us and sharing some insight. I really appreciate the opportunity. Great. No, thank you for having me. I'm really excited for, for our conversation today. You know, as is the case with all the guests on this show, I'd like to get a little bit into your backstory. So I'd like to begin by asking, what did you want to be when you grew up? Wow. Um, so a little bit about I guess what led me to think of what I wanted to be when I was younger. I mean, my my folks were immigrants from from Ecuador. I was born and raised in Southern California, and uh, during my younger years, we did a lot of traveling uh, back and forth to Ecuador and uh, other parts of, of the U.S. and And I think that that traveling got me excited and interested in just something to do with the international world, something to do with uh, the realm of uh, diplomacy or um, something to do with ambassadors. I must have seen a lot of cool movies. They got me into thinking that one day I'd love to be in that position. And to, to travel the world and, and to and to be a diplomat of some sort. So I think that's where I may have came from. And I think that that's, that was one of the first interests that I had as a, as a child, or I guess visioned as a child, uh, to what I would want to do when I grew up. Interesting. Take us back to what life was like for Kleber growing up in Southern California and traveling back and forth with your parents. 
Um, I think that the exposure um, to a different culture, a different language, a different just setting was very eye-opening. And it kind of gave me perspective that there are different parts of the world and people do live differently and have different traditions and cultures. And, and that was that was great to to see really early on to, to appreciate not only the diversity around the globe, but then also to recognize the diversity within the community that I was brought up in. In, in Los Angeles and, and, and being that the environment in, in, in LA, in California, in, in the United States in general is so diverse given the, the number of immigrants from all over the world that come here. And I think that was valuable for me to see and, and just have perspective and just a vision of just appreciating and accepting diversity. Would you mind sharing where in Southern California you grew up? Were you a part of the uh, Los Angeles Unified School District? Uh, I was born and raised in Torrance, California. So I attended school at um, and, you know, within the Torrance Unified School System, uh, you know, my entire, you know, K through 12 career minus a couple of years that were spent down in South America. Um, shortly after graduating, I attended um, the University of Southern California. Um, and then many years after that, I went back for uh, a master's degree at California State Los Angeles. Do you recall when your career in language access began? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, following the the you know the the initial story that I, that I shared in terms of my upbringing and, and and the traveling and the exposure to the diversity, um, once I got into USC, um, I got into the world of international relations, political science, which is kind of right down the alley of what I had seen myself doing down the road. And as part of that, I did some study abroad sessions um, in in Madrid and did another session in Washington D.C. and continued that trend of just getting to see as much as I could really early on. Um, with that and with that course program came some additional language courses as prerequisites for graduation. So, you know, enhanced my, uh, you know, my language skills. And uh, I, I remember, you know, once senior year, um, we have job fairs that would come to campus. And, and as you're, as you're thinking about ending your college career, entering the workforce, you see, you try to think about what am I going to do next? What does it mean to be uh, a graduate with a degree of international relations. Like, is there, what kind of jobs are out there? And, and fortunately, I stumbled across a, a table that was at the fair from a small translation firm based in Glendale, California. It was inline translation services. And, and uh, that just caught my attention. It caught my eye. The word translation caught my eye. And um, that's where it started. I, I met the, the gentleman at the desk um, a few weeks later. It, that progressed to a couple of interviews and some other processes to just to get uh, assessed and vetted by 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 the company and and that's that's where it started. Um, I it was something that up until now I'll say that the whole translation industry is such a behind the scenes type of thing. Um, we all see text in different languages and ads and Spanish and Chinese and on billboards or wherever or Korean depending on where what communities we're driving through. I never get much thought as to who it comes from, where it comes from, how it's created. And in this opportunity with inline translation, I came on board as a as a project manager. And wow, was that eye-opening in terms of what's involved in the background. Uh, and that's where it all started. What type of experiences did you have um, working as a project manager for a translation company? Yeah, it was um, one of the one of the great things. It was a, a small firm. So, uh, you know, it was all hands on deck on, on several fronts. Um, both with the recruitment of professional freelance translators around the world and how to get a hold of them and, and try to vet their credentials and their certifications and meeting them at trade association conferences throughout the country. 
And also on the other end, meeting clients and trying to understand what their needs were. Most of our clients were, you know, multinational organizations or companies who, who exported or imported all sorts of products and services and needed materials translated to the target uh, market. Um, the other half of the clientele was just for domestic use. A lot of medical insurance companies uh, providing information to, to their LEP populations and signage at medical centers. And that, you know, seeing all that was, was impressive and was on, it was really inspiring that there was actually a niche that I had not known before where it was right up my alley in terms of just connecting the, the different cultures through language um, and getting involved with the actual production of that was, was, was fascinating. Yeah. And I'd have to say that that uh, in a way or largely connects to what you're currently doing. So would you share with us what your current role is and who do you service? So yes, absolutely. So what started as just a you know a, a role as a project manager for a small translation firm progressed throughout the years um, at different different organizations, and, and currently you know, I head up the uh, the translation and interpretation unit for the New York City Department of Education. And um, you know our role in this office is to serve the largest school system in the country, a school system with over over eighteen hundred schools with over 1.1 million parents, um, where 40% of the parents speak a language other than English at home in a system where there's over 180 different languages spoken um, in a setting where parents are being involved and engaged and informed in so many different avenues, whether they be with a phone call, a a message being backpacked home, email during a face-to-face conference or, or what have you. Uh, and now social media, which is the next big frontier. And so then what we do here is simply provide translation interpretation support for, for the system and spearhead all aspects related to language access, whether it's just training, awareness, compliance, uh, and troubleshooting, and trying to make sure that we create the most welcoming setting in all of our schools for all of our parents, not just some of our parents. Yeah, and I believe you had mentioned um, before the recording as well that you also serviced prior to going to the New York Public School Systems um, Los Angeles Unified School District. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So that was uh, that was one of one of my stops prior to to arriving in New York City was heading up uh, the the unit in Los in the in the LAUSD. Um, that was also an amazing experience. Um, similar efforts, similar work, demographics are a bit different, uh, but nevertheless, the importance of the work is still there. And I think that, um, the, the LA Unified School System, um, had actually been there for much more long, a much a longer period of time than New York City. Um, and so there was some history, some traction when I first arrived there, which we were able to just improve on some fronts and, and just feel a more uh, productive, effective, and, and just efficient. Uh, but nevertheless, there's just so much um, work to be done in either school system and all school systems um, that it does take some, some time for, for a, a good, solid program to be established. But yes, my time in LAUSD was, was amazing. Um, and there's great people now continuing to, to do the, the hard work um, as we speak. I have to say that uh, when I was beginning to look into information on trying to create a language access plan for our itsy bitsy school district, nothing compared to the school districts that you now uh, that have serviced and are currently serving. 
the Los Angeles Public School District, as well as uh, New York Public School Systems, has been the two places that I have gone in order to use as examples, as models of where we're trying to get at, obviously at a much, much smaller scale. But nevertheless, I think the template is there. Uh, yes. And it, it's a template that, con- that continues to evolve and mutate. So, it, um, you know, one could take a snapshot of the template today and come back and visit any one of these school systems a year from now. And it'll, it might be a completely different template just because there's so much in motion. And this is a type of work that continues to evolve, not necessarily with the nature of the work involved. When, in, when I refer to nature of the work, I'm talking about translation and interpretation, but I'm talking about how it's delivered. Um, you know, given, for example, now our remote learning environment and how, how some of these services are being delivered to, to parents or LEP individuals has had to evolve as well. And, and that continues to happen. And, and the other thing that, that's really important is not only just providing the support and services to communities, but also the internal workings to make it successful within an organization as big as New York or LA or even smaller school systems it takes a lot of work and effort to make sure that people understand the importance of this work the reasoning behind it, um, and ultimately the return on investment, which is just getting parents involved in children's education to improve student achievement, better graduation rates, so forth and so on. But sometimes connecting those dots takes some time to, to make sure that all folks on board um, are on the same game plan because there are so many competing interests, right, in school systems uh, with limited funding. So it's, that has been a challenge, but the template is there. I think there are great ideas that, that have come from all the work that has been done in this in this field, and by all means, yeah, I mean we're we're still learning ourselves, and and we've learned from other school systems as well. So it's just a, a constant collaborative effort to make sure that we keep in contact all of those those of us that continue to do this work in this field. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that um, you know more so for anyone that's out there listening in trying to wrap their head around where they'd like to start. This was absolutely, um, for me at least, an experience that I knew would serve a, a, a great purpose um, at the end, just because I, I, I knew that I could follow some of these steps or be able to mimic some of these things without having to reinvent the wheel. And, and I didn't feel alone, even though I had not touched base with a, a person necessarily, just the, the visuals um, helped me a lot, you know, in, in being able to see that there was a web page established even, you know, just uh, in, in directing, whether that be the public or um, the internal staff on the services that we were offering. And knowing that we didn't even have that, you know, um, there's just so many things that can, that you can begin just by by going into, um, you know, these websites and getting some of the information and trying to establish these things, which may seem basic, but as you said, do take a while in order to just, I think, to be accepted as part of the um, uh, district or school culture. And continuing with this conversation, I do want to get into the whole remote learning and how COVID has impacted the way that New York Public School Systems offers their TNI services. But before we get into that, uh, Cleaver, I'd like to know what has been your biggest challenge during your career and what do you think it taught you? So in terms of the biggest challenge, and it continues to be one, it is, it is ongoing. We kind of touched on that in, in our previous exchange is, is simply, and I think you said it best, culture is changing the culture. 
of organizations or institutions to to understand the importance of the work that's that that we're trying to accomplish here. Um, f- for example, um, in many cases, um, people see the name of, of our office, translation and interpretation, and and immediately link us to doing something for somebody in order to provide a service for an LEP family or individual. And in essence, that's what we're here to do. But the reality is, and in most of these, these inquiries that come our way, end up being redirected to the owner of the content or the owner of the process or the owner of the initiative or program that's being rolled out. Um, and it's really important that that distinction be made because it, it falls on the shoulders of the owner of this process to think through how to engage their constituents or their parents and, and, and all individuals, all LEP parents. So it falls on them to think about, you know, if they're producing a, 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 an intake form or a website or a portal or robocalls are going out, to think about what about the folks that don't speak English or don't read English. And at that point, once that's thought through, engage us, the TNI office, for either consulting services or just for support, whether it's translating a form or a website or providing uh, robocall audio recordings to send out to folks. But that distinction is important. And what that means is that the work of language access doesn't fall solely on the shoulders of the TI office. The work of language access and the change of the culture falls on everybody who is trying to engage folks from diverse communities. And the challenge, to answer your question, has been to get everybody on board with that change of culture, to understand that whatever initiative is rolled out, there has to be a piece of that planning that addresses this important uh, aspect of the work that we're all trying to do. And it's that constant education, that constant push, um, that constant dialogue that we have with our with our colleagues to make sure that if they didn't think about it this time around, that the next time they will roll out a different initiative or program, that they do think about that. And they think about uh, these little wrinkles that need to be addressed and planned for, and also that time be allotted to do the work that's needed. So that, in a nutshell, is the constant struggle that we have is to remind folks that this is a burden that falls on all of us to be successful. Oh, my gosh. I think that you have so hit the nail on the head with that one. And I could not agree with you more. Like, I mean, you can't see me. Uh, we don't, when we do these sessions, they're completely audio only guys. And so we don't see each other, but I had the biggest smile on my face <laughs> because I could not agree with you more. You know, I think that it just recently, actually a couple of days ago, I had a request on a document that came out from the county level with regards to, you know, the, the reopening of the schools and things of that nature. And the request came to the TNI office to see if we can get that document translated. And so the response was exactly what you just said. It is the responsibility of the county to create this document in the languages that they are serving for the community that they are serving. And so it might take them a while, but, you know, this is something that they do get translated. But it's that constant re-education of, you know, um, just who are your audience, right? I think that that's really the question that um, if they're not going to think of it, do we need it in another language, I think determining who your audiences are and how you're going to best reach them. And if that entails, you know, another language, then there's your, there's your answer right there. You know, we're going to need this document translated because half of my audience is, you know, 
speaking a different language, right? And so, yes, absolutely. I think that that is, I, I agree with you 110% on that one, is creating that change in that that dynamic, which seems like it's not a big deal. Um, but you and I had this conversation uh, in, in another session as well, where particularly I feel like in the school systems where change of administration is so constant, it just feels that this conversation starts from point A every couple of years, maybe, you know, every year, every two years, if you're lucky, you have to continue this conversation because it's a re-education of what T&I services should entail. And so, um, my goodness, yeah, I just got excited hearing another human being share the same thoughts as as I do, because a lot of the times I just feel like, am I alone on this? Am yeah, I absolutely. And, and, and I think that these types of conversations are being held in silos throughout the country. Um, and in some places it's been, those conversations have successfully proceeded to the right direction and others have stalled and some have actually gone backwards in terms of progress. So that's, that's the challenge there. And I, and I hear you with, with turnover and the fact that once you have not only a game plan and changed everybody's culture and the right people in the right places, and then someone's gone or someone moves on and, and and you're starting from zero again and the educational process begins again. So I hear you on that. And that's just, I've I've pretty much just chalked it up as to being part of the uh, part of the job description at this point in terms of just being on people uh, on this topic consistently. And, and, you know, maybe also just, falling down every once in a while when we fail as an organization because of the change, but then picking ourselves up and doing the right thing moving forward again. Yeah. You know, that's a definitely a, a shift in my mindset that I'm going to have to work on. And I, I love how you said it, you know, like, let's just accept the fact that this is part of the job description. <laughs> because <laughs> it's, it's not written there, but it's there. <laughs> imagine it's there because let me tell you i'll i can get started with preaching on this subject like (laughs) here we go again the new school year new administrators and we're starting from point a again so anyway cleaver i i want to get into the conversation about because these are the times and it's current events um and i know that covid has changed the way that we service our families in our school district in terms of the platforms that we are currently using in order to deliver our service. Um, Of course, this being a remote service and the difficulties that that has brought for our families in terms of, you know, um, connectivity, in terms of devices, in terms of knowing how to use the um, meeting platforms that we're using. Uh, That's on the, the family side, of course. And then we've got the whole interpreter side on um, the use of technology and having the appropriate equipment in order to deliver and guarantee um, accurate and meaningful uh, communications with the parents. So it has definitely been a challenge. I know in our school district of 20,000 students (laughs) compared to a system as big as New York public school systems. What has that been like? for TNI services out there? So yes, no, it's been an, an eye-opening experience on multiple fronts and, and we're still, you know, we're still feeling the effects on, on some areas. Um, I'll, I'll start, I mean, there's been pros and cons and, and there's been, you know, things that we've learned how to adjust that, that, that work better than they did 
early on during remote learning. But I'll start with with um, maybe a, a little positive um, and, and kind of connected to our previous topic, um, just to wrap that up nicely. We talked about, um, we were talking about culture and bringing attention and awareness to the importance of this work internally. I, I will say that COVID has highlighted some another area um, that has taken a lot of interest from uh, internal stakeholders, and that's the digital divide of, of folks not being able to access information online for multiple reasons, whether families don't have devices, they don't have internet access, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason I, I highlight that is language access has been kind of tagged along into that bucket of digital divide slash language access. And that's been a win in the sense that it's gotten more people on board with the fact that this work needs to be done and how important it is. So if there is a silver lining in this whole setting in this new environment, it has been that the digital divide has brought some, has shed some light on the importance and, and the need for language access. Putting that aside, um, there has been, you know, some struggles with, um, let's continue with, with translation for now. There has been some struggle. There have been some struggles in regards to providing, you know, translated materials. Um, Generally, our office is mostly involved with parent communications, not necessarily student-facing or instructional materials or content. That's usually taken care of by other means here at New York City. Um, Mostly folks who just develop and publish instructional materials for, for ELL or MLL students. So we don't really get involved, but there's now this gray area of providing parents information on how to assist with the instructional materials that students receive. Right. And so it's been this, this gray area that's been, that actually should have always been there since day one, but now there's a lot more emphasis and focus on it. So we have gotten involved a bit more in translating content that is kind of meant for both populations, both parents and students, because parents need to know how, how and what to do with the stuff once they have the stuff and um, at home. So that has been something that we've played catch up on for, for some time. And I think we're finally ready to say we now have nice resources in place, but we were really caught, you know, not ready when this happened. And there was a, you know, there was some struggles to make sure that we got up to speed. And again, it's, it's, it's being responsive to the content owners of this work. Um, and working with them diligently to make sure that we can get the work done as quickly as possible. So one thing is translating the stuff. And the second thing is making it available online, assuming parents can still access the information. It's also, you know, if that's not a possibility, mailing out, direct mailing, um, you know, instructional materials for, for, for students and parents to households and, and the work involved around that and the system this big, making sure that we identify which language to set, which package to to which parent is also another factor that we consider. Fortunately, we have pretty good language data to help us with that a little bit. So that's the work on the translation end. And, and, it, and I feel that that is um, that on the instructional end, I think we're in a better position. In terms of just the daily school communications that we were a big part of in previous school years, I think that comes September. I mean, the process in terms of getting our services and us providing the translations back hasn't really changed because everything's done electronically. Someone emails us a request, a document to be translated. We do what we do best and we, we submit the translations back to schools and they in the past would backpack these things home, but now there are no backpacks to fill. Right. So the, the item, the, the issue here now is once these materials go back to schools, that schools do their part and have a system in place to disseminate information I mean, let's just start in English. That uh, we hope they're doing it in English and doing it well, 
Every school does something different, has a different messaging tool available to them, and that whatever they use to make sure that they're also thinking about attaching the translations that we provided. Because one of the things that, that irks me the most is that seeing our staff work so hard to provide these materials as quickly and as, you know, with the high quality that we aim to have, and they ultimately not getting to the households and the parents that actually need them because someone didn't attach them to an email, didn't post them online, didn't print them and so forth. So the struggle is to make sure now that the work that we do when we provide for schools come September actually is then further disseminated on to, to families who actually need the information. And that's something that we're going to keep a close eye on. We're going to, we're going to take a close look in terms of what tool schools are using to disseminate information. So many schools use all these neat features, school messenger um, and other, and other programs and applications to, to, to communicate with folks. Um, and some of those tools have integrated machine translation capabilities. So they actually, they may not be coming up. They may not be coming out to us for support because they may have something uh, that they think is sufficient. So those are the kind of things we're keeping an eye on on the translation side. Um, on the interpretation side, I think I think you're accurate in, in, in describing that it is a different environment. There are different tools in place. Um, we have had some struggles. Uh, we did have some struggles at the get-go to make sure that everybody understood how this would work, including us. I mean, this was new to us as well. But we are now at a point where we have a big enough pool of contracted interpreters with the right equipment in hand to make this successful. And of course, we need interpreters that not only are great interpreters, both simultaneous and consecutive, but also have the equipment available to do this. And we talked about Zoom and Microsoft Teams and, and the Google application and, and, and WebEx and so forth. One thing is having that set up and also just making sure that there's a system in place, that there's headsets involved, that there's a separate perhaps cell phone on the side to make phone calls to call into a different call-in number where the interpretation is actually going to be held. That, you know, that whole concept, it, it's hard to grasp if I try to describe it to you. You actually have to live it once to understand how complex that is. Um, and in theory, what it is, it's, it's, it's having the audio feed happening in, happening in a Zoom meeting, um, going into the interpreter's ears and have the interpreter speak into a separate phone call that we hope parents have logged in and are listening to the target uh, interpretation on that phone line while they're viewing the English on the computer screen. So it's quite complex and it has, it's something that we, we now are in a better place with our, with our vendor and our contracted interpreters. Um, but we're still struggling with just our internal folks understanding how complex this is. Yeah. And, and so then um, the under, trying to get them to understand to pre-plan ahead, to pre-schedule as, as, as far ahead as possible, to have the URLs for the Zoom meeting set up and the, and the call-in numbers for each language line to be set up to promote that properly through promotional advertisement of the meeting that's coming up in a couple of weeks and not just to not include it because then people don't know that the service is available and how to access it. So then we have interpreters doing their work on these phone lines with nobody on the call listening to interpretation, um, which kind of defeats the purpose. So there's, there, it has changed the game a little bit. Um, we, we have, we now kind of know the rules of the games and now it's just a matter that we all follow the rules of the game. Um, and it's going to be with us, for the foreseeable future. And I, and I think that, you know, I think the future involves both, you know, this remote online interpretation in addition to the old school on-site face-to-face interpretation, which I think is going to happen as well. So we, we have our hands full on that front. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I have to say that my experience at least has been that uh, I've had a couple of principals uh, mention prior to the end of last school year that 
parents are actually asking for this virtual platform for, you know, town hall meetings or school-wide meetings to continue uh, that, you know, for the school to actually consider continuing having these meetings uh, online uh, because the the response and the accessibility, surprise, surprise, right, is um, it, it's just much better for parents to be able to go online at home rather than, you know, doing the shuffle. And um, I've got to admit that the school board meetings, as tiring as those are, matter of fact, uh, last night's ended at, it, it ended because it has to end. It's the next day by midnight. And so they're not, they're no longer allowed to continue <laughs> on a different day, right? But um, these meetings are so much better. It was going to be midnight and there was at least 150 participants still on the line. So, um, yeah, I I really do think that you, like you said, I think the, some of these, some of these aspects, I think it seems like might be considered for continuance in the future. Some of it, maybe not all of it, but it has to say the least been quite a ride and and quite a learning experience. So I, I cannot imagine what that is like for a school system as big as yours. You mentioned something important earlier, Kleber, that I kind of want to touch on just briefly um, in, in trying to share as much information as we possibly can squeeze in in this amount of time to those that are listening and, and interested in creating some sort of plan for their school or their school district. In one of the uh, recent trainings that I, that I had, um, I, I talk about knowing who are the players on your team. And, and what I meant by this is who's on the bench, right? Like who's going to be the people that you're going to be consistently talking to that are making these decisions in order to ensure that the communication that you're trying to get out there gets out there, right? Who are these decision makers? And earlier you had talked about ensuring that the communications are getting sent out, that they're getting shared. So the question is, who are your particular key players in your district in ensuring that your established structures continues to stay in place? Because it's one thing that you create something, right, within your TNI department. And it's another thing to push it out and ensure that these administrators are also assisting you in pushing this out. So for your particular situation in such a big school district, I'm just wondering, uh, Department of Ed, I'm sorry, I'm just wondering, who are your key players? So that's a great question. Um, so there are key players that could be defined by the roles that they play in the system and separately by who they are and what they stand for. And that's, that, that distinction is really, really important because sometimes both of those factors need to be on your side for this to be successful. Um, we as a translation interpretation unit have on, on an organizational level have been moved around so many times and because we were just kind of like that orphan child that didn't fit nicely in this org chart or that org chart. So we've been in the division of communications. We've been in the division of parental engagement. We've been in the div- division of teaching and learning and so forth and so on. But ultimately the reality is, is, is it's because we touch almost everything that goes out in one aspect or the other. And in order to have, you know, your go-to players to help you make this thing successful, there needs to be someone from from perhaps all of these all of these areas within the school system. There needs to be someone from the communications end that that understands that anything that goes out has to go out, you know, in X number of languages, or else it shouldn't go out, and 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 hold that line firm firmly, um, so as not to set precedent 
um, that anything else can be done that doesn't meet that expectation. Um, you have your your parent office or your parent engagement office or uh, that school systems typically have, where they're they're on the front lines. Uh, they're the ones engaging and informing uh, families. There's a lot of uh, parent leadership uh, organizations and and networks out there where we ask parents to be in, involved and engaged at a very high leadership position. Um, if and if we want the, a pure and a um, a diverse opinion on which way the district should go, that those councils, those organizations should be be made up of the diversity that that's reflected in their community, which means that some of these parent leaders may be LEP parents, which is the case in some areas here in New York City. Um, so the parent office is important. And then you can get into other areas. You can get into the office and division of, you know, English language learners or multilingual learners. You can get into the division of special education where we talk about IEPs and how important that is for families to be engaged and informed in a timely manner. So there are different aspects of an organization um, that you want to get together. Um, whether as one-offs or as smaller groups or as a big group. And, and you'll know that those roles are important, but as I mentioned earlier, the individuals filling those roles have to be equally as important because they need to have buy-in and have understanding about how important this, this work is and how, how important it is for their work, I think is even better said, because they will not be successful unless they understand and grasp the concept of what they need to do and accomplish with regard to language access. Most definitely. Kleber, has there been a work-related moment in your life that has inspired you or has left a long-lasting impression? You know, there's, there have been. Um, there have been way too few, though. And I, and I, and I think that's the not being able to see the end product of the work that we're doing as much as we, as we should. Um, you know, we see ourselves as a service provider, providing this service, providing that service. But at the end of the day, the beneficiary of that service is going to be a parent at a school or a parent at a district office who's registering their child for the first time. And seeing the services uh, provided successfully, whether that be with an exchange with a, an official, with a parent and an interpreter in a setting, and the conclusion of that meeting taking place and wrapping up and seeing the smile on the parent's face about understanding exactly what's going on and what the next steps are. And they being able to understand that in their language has been um, the gratifying moments that I see every once in a while. And I don't see enough because I'm simply not out there um, in the front line seeing that happen. But those are the moments because those are the moments that, that are, you know, our team of, you know, X number of translators who, who sit in front of a computer nine to five Monday through Friday, every day of the year and work so alone and produce this material, never actually get to see how their work affects real life folks in the community. So um, seeing that firsthand is, was, is an awesome experience and uh, you know, or seeing it or uh, on the translation and seeing a parent follow through with the instructions of a document they've received in their native language by either making a phone call, taking an action, responding to a form um, or doing something or attending an event um, brings a smile to my face because it actually shows that the work that we're doing is useful and productive to folks and that at the end of the day, these parents are interested in getting more information, getting further engaged um, because they love and they care for their, for their child, obviously. And, and without the, the bridge that we built, they would not have been able to do that. I love that. I think that is uh, so true. 
in terms of just being able to feel that just gratification feeling, right? Just because it, it does fill you with this sense of I'm doing the right thing or I'm, I am involved in something that, um, you know, does have a positive attached to it. And like you said, you know, we, we, we do our job, we do it to the best of our ability, obviously with pride and, um, you know, with a sense of, of service, um, but we don't always get to see the end result. And so I, I do absolutely love that, knowing that the parent actually engaged in a particular program, a particular service as a result of what they read or as a result of what they heard. I think um, that that's a great example um, of something that, that can definitely leave an impression because you, it makes you feel that it's all worthwhile. Absolutely. Kleber, I'd like to be able to take, and I know that condensing it is going to be extremely difficult, but I'd like to be able to take or give rather the listeners a couple of actionable items that they can do in order to begin the process of creating a language access plan. But before we get right into that, would you help define what we mean by a language access plan? Well, how much time do we have? Yeah. <laughs> 10 minutes and go. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, okay. So, so, so language access plan or program or services is, is pretty much sums up any, any types of supports and services that are in place to engage, to inform, and to overcome any language barriers that may exist between you know, two parties. And that, uh, it, it, in that, it, it involves obviously the given translation and interpretation aspects of it, but th- that can be broken down in so many different ways. But beyond that, is just the, the, the language awareness access uh, to resources, to sign, multilingual signage, training uh, of staff on this topic and where to get s- supports and services, um, bringing on board qualified vendors to help with this service. And if, you're, you know, if your district is able to bring in full-time staff or part-time staff, defining those roles and the expectations of that small unit or large unit that, you know, is in the, in the blueprint somewhere. Um, monitoring progress in terms of what's been produced and outputted with the services being provided uh, is really important. So you can gauge how much work has been done and how much work has increased incrementally from one year to the next. Um, data is critical. Um, I think that having a sense of having a pulse on your demographics, on who you're servicing, I think you mentioned earlier, is really, really important getting that data. Some school systems have that data. Some school systems do not. I think that's, that's, that's a great start to, to start any argument to tell, to tell, you know, leadership, you know, of uh, 10,000 parents, 50% of them speak Spanish or whatever, then however the numbers break down. And, you know, and 30% of those families have, you know, have an IEP or a child in special education. Data is, is what drives a lot of decisions in many cases. It could also drive the drafting of a plan, whether it's um, how much budget you'll need and, and the cost involved for translating uh, materials, how many communications are developed throughout the year. Could, could we define the universe of, of, of documents, whether it's, you know, we do four newsletters a year, or we do one welcome back to school letter and one parent-teacher conference letter that happens twice a year, and it's about 500 words. I mean, there are ways to try to at least at a baseline come up with some numbers. Um, everything that I described are all pieces of a puzzle. And Every one of those pieces requires a little bit of work. Um, another piece of the puzzle is just creating just awareness internally and, and getting stakeholders involved who have the same interest and drive as you do, because this is something that cannot be done alone. There needs to be people that are on board who are echoing those concerns and those ideas to the right folks internally 
until it hits the right person who helps you know, get you over the hump to make this happen. So um, in a nutshell, uh, that's what language access service or program or plan is. So those are some of the pieces involved. And like I said, each one of those requires a ton of work and dialogue and discussion, but it's all do, they could all be done time permitting, you know, simultaneously with throughout different conversations or exchanges with, with internal folks. Thank you for that, Kleber. And these plans, although they could be internal department guidelines or just uh, rules of how to submit or how to request services, although they could be in that way, there's also another way, right, to put these plans in writing and into action. And for New York public school systems, this looks like a uh, regulation of the chancellor. Is that correct? Correct. So what I described and what we were talking about was purely a plan, right? And the problem with the plan is that it's sometimes not, inf- or most of the time, not enforceable unless there's a policy piece or component to it. Chancellor's Regulation A663 is the name of our policy piece. Um, and that came about with you know, much negotiation many years ago with the right people around the table to make this happen. But that policy piece um, usually stems from some uh, massive interest from outside parties of the organization or internally, if that's possible, um, whether it be uh, positive pressure, negative pressure, a lawsuit or something that that presses the right buttons so that folks can talk about the development of a policy because a policy is enforceable. And that is even more difficult than the plan itself because a plan can be developed and shared and as a best practice or as a guidelines for schools to, to follow. But like I said, it, it, it lacks the, the stick. Um, it's the policy piece that, that needs to have a lot more people on board uh, because typically once something is set in policy, it's also connected to funding as well. I'm going to ask what you think with regards to, because it sounds like this would be the obvious approach for uh, any entity who services um, numerous languages. Uh, Your opinion, your honest opinion, why isn't this something that all Department of Educations have created for their families? Well, two things. There's Many, many competing interests in every school system, and and to get this important piece on the radar to compete with everything else is a challenge in itself. The other piece of this, which we actually haven't talked about yet in our session today, is the the perception or the devaluing of the work that we do by folks who don't understand the work that we do. Um, technology, the use of these tools like Google Translate and all these apps, and you speak into something and it comes out in Japanese. I've seen it all. It almost devalues the importance and hard work and the professionalism of the work that that we stand for. And because of that, because of the perception that this is easy to do and simple to do and cheap to do, sometimes there's not the same value of importance placed on it. So a lot of school systems will simply say, we have the Google Translate button on our website. Can't you just run it through Google Translate? You know, go ask so-and-so to just do a quick, fast translation, and that should be sufficient. That is actually one of the biggest hurdles for us to overcome is, is making sure not only, you know, I spoke earlier about changing the culture, about putting pieces in place into existing processes regarding language access, but the other piece of this, and it's regardless of whether it's a school system or any other city agency or organization or entity, is the fact that the, this work that's produced is a profession, um, and it requires professionals and experienced seasoned professionals to do this work. 
and to have a true understanding um, of how each language is so unique and how each language requires different prerequisites, fonts, right to left, left to right justification, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, and I think that is the piece that is, is also a constant, uh, there's a constant need for, for education on that front. And it makes it, like I said earlier, it makes it much more difficult to continue to, to press the importance of that when we're competing against these technologies, these apps that just seem to give the perception that it's so easy to do. Yeah. And I think that one of the many reasons why I enjoy having these conversations with other professionals in the f- same field is because, you know, we're able to identify all kinds of different levels of where other schools or school districts or Department of Education can begin, whether that's at the beginner level or if you've already created this internal plan, what is the next step? And so I think that specific piece that you just mentioned um, earlier with regards to we can create a plan, but uh, we need something uh, to help it make it enforceable. And so going back to that regulation of the chancellor, it, that could be the title um, you know, for, for you out there, for some of these other states. Uh, in California, we would call that a board policy um, or a um, administra- administrative regulation, right, which is a more detailed plan, but the board policy looks like it's like um, the bare minimum in writing just uh, to be able to get that out there. And then something more detailed uh, would look like an administrative regulation, correct? Yes, yes, absolutely. And and just, just to add a, a little more about um, the regulation, one of the things that it has allowed us to do, in addition to, to saying that we must do this, we must do that, we must do this, there is a piece in that regulation which, which has been extremely helpful in, in terms of helping changing the culture of, of just folks on, on this topic. Um, there's, there's a portion of the regulation that talks about each school having their own language access plan and requiring that the school develop a plan on a yearly basis. Yes. Oh my gosh, Kleber. For anyone that knows me or that has heard me preach over and over, not only does the school district need an overall plan, the schools themselves need a plan for their own families and their own staff. Yes, um, what that plan is and what it asks and what it looks like, I mean, it, it continues to change every year. It's a, it's a simple four-page document with like 10 questions on it. It's not a thing of rocket science. But the importance was is develop a tool that would force people to sit around the table at least once a year to talk about this topic. And whether it is, you know, yes, we have X number of families who need support. Yes, we have the language support. This is how we do it. I'll take that for now because at least there was a conversation had on the topic, which in the past there had not been. So um, to to the to the question of you know this policy piece and and how to change the culture and how to make this enforceable, the policy piece is not just simply that we must do this, we must do that. There, there's also other tentacles that are in there that help with all these other challenges that we've 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 uh, touched on during this conversation today, including changing culture and creating awareness on language access. Absolutely. And I think that, um, I, I mean, I'm one that am so ready to get something like this started and uh, pushed forward. And uh, my biggest dream is to be able to see um, many of our surrounding districts um, going forward with something of the sort, because 
exactly like you just said, I think it um, it would prove to be uh, an answer, I think, to a lot of the challenges that are currently happening uh, in a lot of our school systems. Um, one of many, of course, it's not an end all. It, it's, a, it's a continued um, evolved plan and process, uh, just depending again on, on who we're servicing and of course, uh, who's on board and um, making the decisions. But nonetheless, I think it, it, it does serve just a bigger purpose because it goes beyond a person or it goes beyond a position. It's a part of the organization and it, it it does allow for these conversations to be had instead of um, being reminded uh, over and over again that you need to be having these conversations. So my goodness, right. we could spend, I think, a whole extra hour <laughs> on this particular subject. I know I would love to, um, but I do want to honor your time and um, I, I want to get through some of these other questions that I have for you. So having said that, having explained the language access plan, what would you say would be three actionable steps someone can take in order to begin the plan? Never mind the the policy piece, but just to begin putting a plan together. Uh, I heard you loud and clear on that data. Data is crucial. What other two things would you recommend, uh, Kleber, to someone for someone to get started with a plan? Absolutely. No, yes, data for sure. Um, that That's critical. I, just, to, just to get the train out of the station, I think that one of the things, and it could be quite simple to do, um, is is to really just take an inventory of, of major critical communications that, that the school system produces for, for parents, whether that's defined as, you know, documents that come from, you know, quote unquote, the central office or the, the district office, or, or, or schools that, that anyone can define however they, 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 they feel uh, should be defined given their circumstance. But coming up with a, um, a, a listing or an inventory of documents, things that come to mind are, for example, um, you know, is there a yearly communication for back to school for parents describing you know, what, how, what to expect the school year? Is there a template of a report card that that's needed that goes that the whole system system uses are two things that come to mind. Um, but I'm sure that each individual office has within a school system has multiple communications that go out on a yearly basis. And um, so I think that is that gives folks a, a good starting point. I mean, are we talking about just two documents or are we talking about 50 documents and and getting a sense of you know these are things that happen every single year. Not to include the emergency unexpected communications, but just the standard stuff that's done every single year. Highlighting those documents to, to others about how these may or may not have been translated in the past and connecting that to the data that you hopefully have to some to some level will give you a sense and a great you'll be in a great position to say to to other you know stakeholders within the organization you know these 50 documents half of them are translated half of them are not some of them are in certain languages some of them are not and given our data they should go to x y and z because that's just the right thing to do um, similarly, taking a peek at you know very high profile um, parent events again that could be defined at a very high level. It could be you know a one town hall meeting a year, or it can be several events that happen throughout the year, depending on the school system and the size of the school system, or at the school level as well. And just pinpointing these events that take place on a yearly basis 
and start mapping out the needs and what would be required to provide interpretation support. Putting those three things together is, is a game plan just to get the conversation going. Because once once you get that train out of the station in subsequent years, you could add other documents, you could add other meetings, you could add school level you know, interactions and grow from there. But at least for a starting point, to present some someone with something I think that's a great way to start. You could actually even connect those things to, to figures and budgets and costs if you really want to go that far and get quotes and stuff like that, um, or see how many you know people hours that would take to do with in-house staff. It gives you something to work and play with. Yes, yes, absolutely. All great advice. These are uh, steps that can easily be taken by anyone, really, um, particularly though if you're first starting out and you're not sure what you want to tap into first because there's so many things that you want to start with, uh, beginning here is great. And I absolutely encourage anyone that is remotely interested in beginning a process, creating a TNI unit, or just creating uh, systems or procedures for translation and or interpreting services in your school district to listen to this episode a couple of times if need be and envision what it is that you want to put forth in order to begin the process. Because these, at the end of the day, are critical steps that need to be taken. It's like basically what what Kleber is doing here is providing you that roadmap. And if you try to attempt shortcuts, you may have some sort of outcome. But what we're giving you here is something that will create something that's sustainable, which means that something that you know, can outlast you and the administrators that possibly are there. And of course, the starting process is always the hardest. And like you said, Kleber, it's at least to get the conversation started. And once you know that the conversation will indeed get started, you show up and you show up with data or you show up with numbers because you're not going to get anywhere if you just show up and say, this should be this way because I think it should, rather than, you know, because the numbers say it should. So uh, like in anything, if you're going to show up with a problem, uh, also show up with a solution. Would you agree, Clever? Absolutely. And I think, you know, if if time permitting and if, you know, we want to, you know, add it information in this 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 document that we're kind of describing there are policy pieces that currently exist in different levels whether it's at you know it, it, if it does not exist at the school district level states have some policy pieces that touch on this uh, and, and the federal government does as well I mean if, if that helps to persuade some folks to understand that this is not only you know a nice thing to do it's kind of like a have to thing to do because it's that it's that important. Um, so that, you know, there's, there's elements in I, IDEA, there's elements in Title I funding and Title III funding as well that school systems receive that touch on engaging parents, LEP parents. So there's some language out there if the school, if your school system or your, you know, your organization doesn't have any policy per se. Yeah, if you're in some school district that is unaware of uh, some of these language laws, it'd be nice to kind of uh, put it in writing and show it to them. I mean, it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> Law Absolutely. states. Cleaver, just a couple of more questions and I promise we'll let you go. Just 
share with us some resources or supports that have helped you along the way that you could share with others? Um, we talked about, um, you know, creating templates, but templates not in the sense of actual documents, but just visuals of what resources have been created, what policy pieces, our chances, regulation, um, signage, glossaries, training materials. This is this. These are all things that you know we we want to share with everybody who can get access to them, and and you know we also take a look at what other organizations are doing as well. We all you know we all have great ideas that we're throwing into this into this into this business into this industry that we need to make use of a recycle or twist and turn and make it work for for our communities. So the, I, I would encourage everybody to continue to do to research and to reach out and just communicate. That's what we're here to do: communicate and engage. Uh, you know, other folks who work in the same you know field in other cities. And I'm talking about not only large cities like New York and LA or Chicago or Miami, but smaller school systems as well. I mean, and and whether it's in California or the Midwest or Hawaii, I can tell you stories about what Hawaii is going through. Every this is an issue everywhere, whether it's big or small or West Coast or East Coast or, or whatever the case may be. It's having that ability to communicate and share ideas. And this is why I think this opportunity with you um, was was incredible because it's another avenue for, for us to engage and, and, and to talk. And, and perhaps after this, someone will have an idea that sparks another conversation or we'll have follow up, you know, side conversations with other folks and, you know, the momentum continues to grow. So I want to thank you for having this available for folks and having the opportunity to, to, to engage with you and, 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 and uh, others that listen to your podcast, because I think it's, it's just another way of trying to do what we're trying to accomplish, which is to communicate and to, and to connect. You've no idea. The pleasure is completely all mine and having these conversations with professionals like you and people that, uh, like you are so willing to share their knowledge and share the information um, for that very reason so that we can connect, so that we can um, professionalize this role in the specialization that we're in. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure for me. Klebert, lastly, I promise, and then I'll let you go, even though I could continue having this conversation for quite a while. Where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Um, I think that the best uh, avenue for that is, I mean, not that, that I have tons of information online, but I mean, if, if people want to you know, see the, the work uh, that I've been involved with, um, my LinkedIn account is probably the best way to go. Um, and, you know, it's simply just my first name, last name, Kleber Palma, and there's some information and background on me specifically. Um, if you want to see the type of work that we're doing at the New York City Department of Education, it's, it's frankly just connecting to, to that website, which is schools.nyc.gov. Uh, and you can quickly find out information about our language access efforts. I'll make sure to include the links to uh, both your LinkedIn account and also to um, the New York City uh, Department of Education's uh, website in the show notes. Uh, but for closing, I just want to say I wish that we could clone you and send you off to all these different uh, conferences going on and just talk about you know the work that you've done in these extremely large um, school districts or uh, public offices of education as well. And and uh, just share that knowledge so that you can, as you did for me, um, just continue to encourage the work that we're doing and to continue the effort. So once again, I want to take the opportunity to thank you for your time. It is very much appreciated, and I very much enjoyed this conversation. 
Likewise, no, it's been fantastic. I, I'm, I'm like you. I, I could talk about this for hours and, 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 and enjoy every moment of it. So I, I want to thank you for creating the space for us to, to have this dialogue. And um, if you ever need anything else from me, you know where to reach me. Thank you, Cleaver. All right. I'd like to invite you to join the many of us that are currently involved in the long journey to help professionalize the role of the interpreter and translator in the area of education. The Interpreting and Translation Workgroup has been diligently working to create a formal process for the creation of ethics and standards for educational interpreters of spoken languages and translators. This is a call to action for you to join the efforts. Find out more about the ITE Workgroup at iteworkgroup.com. See, it's even easy to remember. iteworkgroup.com. Thank you yet again for joining me today on this episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Have a wonderful rest of the week. Take care now. Till next time. Oh, and tell your story. Brand the Interpreter. Bye-bye. Hey, don't go yet. I wanted to squeeze in one last reminder that I'm raffling admissions to the Interpreter Education Online's Winter Virtual Conference taking place December 4th, 2020, beginning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's 7 a.m. for us West Coast states. And all you have to do is if you're following me on social media, that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, you're going to want to post a selfie or that of your workstation, respond to the following question, which is, what is one new thing you've learned during this unprecedented time that you feel has or will make you an even better interpreter or translator? Tag a fellow language professional and tag me. See? Easy peasy. I'm going to be announcing winners tomorrow, Thursday, November 26th, 2020. So quickly, take out that phone, take that picture, upload it, answer the question, tag a couple people, tag me, and that's it. Hey, did I mention that they're offering CEUs for this conference? Yep. Anyway, three lucky winners will be announced Thursday, November 26th. See you then.